What's up, world? I got a question for you. What is it that makes coffee so damn good? Maybe it's that caffeine and dopamine hit you get after pounding a pot or two. Or perhaps it's that feeling of connection that you get when you sit down with another person to work on yourselves in the process of recovery. Maybe it's the fact that you can take something so bitter and turn it into something so delicious. Whatever it is, we in the recovery community love our coffee. And why not? Coffee is fuel. Coffee is love. Coffee is life. That's what makes Brainwash Coffee the perfect partner for the Other Side of Hell podcast. Not only is every flavor of Brainwash Coffee mastered and handcrafted by obsessive minds who won't stop until they've gotten it just right, but 50% of all proceeds go back into the recovery community to help those who may still be suffering, which makes Brainwash Coffee a no-brainer. My personal favorite is Ego Ain't Your Amigo, a nice blend of Ethiopian and Guatemalan bean with a hint of citrus, dried fruit, and caramel flavor makes it a delicious blend for any time of day. Right now, you can go to brainwashedcoffeeco.com and use promo code OTHERSIDE for 20% off your coffee purchase. Brainwashed Coffee. Clean your bean. We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, world? I'm Willie. And I'm Craig. I mean, Cameron. <laughs> Hi, Craig. I mean, Cameron. Hi, Willie. Oh, man. I'm, I'm energized today. You got this little... I'm a mess, but I'm energized. Dude, so. I, I like your energy. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, we have a, a interesting topic today, and we have part two of the not-so-anonymous, uh, what would you call it, double feature. Double feature, not-so-anonymous. <laughs> we got Dylan Coming out on the here. gate, Dylan and Donnie. Yeah, we, we featured Donnie last week. Today, you get Dylan. That's right. You know, yeah. And, and again, another super, super great story yeah. that uh, a lot of experience, strength, and hope coming from those guys. And um, for sure, a story that I think a lot of people will hopefully identify with and yeah. get something from. You know, and, so. and one, of, one of the things that we pulled out of that story is something that he mentions a couple times. And the way that he puts it is social acceptability does not equal personal recovery. Mm -hmm. and, and we wanted to talk about and kind of tweak that a little bit. Because, you know, there's there's so many times that I think a certain something is going to make me okay. You know, or if I have a certain amount of, of anything or that the world can see me in a certain way, then that means that I'm okay. Sure. Right? And and so I know that I've had that in recovery, sober, that that yeah. appearance mm -hmm. that I that I think I need that's gonna that's gonna make me okay or whatever it is. And I've also had it in addiction, you know, where where unfortunately it was like the more negative side of that. Like if I'm the baller, the big, big drill drug dealer, killer, mm -hmm. Willa Manila, if I'm the man, then. Did you actually go by Willa Manila? <laughs> no, oh, okay. no, but I remember, a, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, insane clown posse song or skid or something on one of their albums it's like i'm the big dealer drug dealer cat pillar 
And then at the end of that whole thing, his mom <laughs> comes out and yells at him. He's like, get inside. Mom. You know, because it's a great depiction of what we really are. Right. You know, on the to outside. ourselves, yeah. On the outside, there's this... Uh, there's this big facade, you know, for me, I didn't even know who I was. I just thought I needed certain things in order to be okay. And so if that, if what I was doing was socially acceptable, whether it was just in that crowd of drug addicts and, and drug dealers and, mm. and active addicts, if it was acceptable in there, then I would just stay away from the people that weren't using or drinking so that I could be accepted over here, even though they didn't even know everything that I was doing to try to get that facade or that image or whatever out there. An image was really big for me in active addiction sure i needed i had to be a certain person and, and dylan talked a lot about that you know he was the and and we'll get into it but he had he had all he had all the right faces you know for for that acceptability like you're okay and because i can prove that i'm okay then obviously i am okay you can't say a fucking thing to me because i'm good well and that's and that's what it is is it's like hey if, as long as column a is full and abundant then you can't give me shit for my lack of column b right yeah, like, like well what what would you have in column a for me yeah for me it was definitely like am i being am i are my bills getting paid like are you know am i uh still attending family functions like um, am I, do I still have a job? Um, you know, am I still working every day? Um, and like, as long as like, do I still have a car that functions and operates? Like as long as these things are in place, then, then fuck you. I'll do what I want. Like, yeah. then and, you, you know, like, why would you give me any shit for what I choose to do? I'm still holding up all these obligations. I still have all these things like. The normalcy yeah. of the world. Yeah. Like, right. and as long as I have those things, then, then, you know, like, so be it. Yeah. And then what would you, what would you put in column B? If I have everything in column A in check, what would, what would. Well, column, column B, B is just be? like my amount of partying, right? Like, or my amount of, uh, um, I mean, I'm trying to think the best way to, to, to to phrase that because I mean what and what I mean by that is like if 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 everything I'm doing is is uh going well quote unquote going well then it doesn't matter what what isn't happening right, right? like uh the things that aren't happening from a spiritual level so like column b would be like my spirituality like my inner self like what's happening internally like my self-love um, and, or even like my physical fitness or, you know, anything like that where, Hey, like, or am I fucking hung over every day of the week? Right. It doesn't uh, matter because I'm working. Yeah. It doesn't matter because I'm still, I'm still paying my bills. I'm still, you know, I still have a job. And, and so, you know, there's no balance. There's all excess in one column and then lack of in the other. Yeah. And, uh, and as long as, what I see in excess is what everybody else sees. Yeah. Then it's okay that column B is depleted. Yeah. It's a hard juggling act, man, out there. And that trying to maintain, you know, because, because I had, I had those two different lives where it was, it was the things you were talking about. I had to have the, the society standard of living, mm -hmm. which was really hard for me to do. Right. Um, Drug, drugs and alcohol pretty much consumed me from a very young age and 
So I really like what you said about like like family functions right. and having a vehicle and um, you know showing up to places or whatever. And it didn't matter if I showed up loaded or not. But I'm here. I I also use I use that on both sides of the fence, right? Because if I have a if I have a vehicle that works and I have something to offer the drug side of the world, right? Whether it be drugs or a ride or a place to party or something like that, then then I'm accepted over here. And then I can go over here and because I have a place to party or a place to sleep, as mm-hmm. my family would see, at least he's not homeless right now. And I had a car that was running, you know, at least he's not walking right now. And then I could always lie whether or not I had a job, you know, just be like, yeah, I'm working, I'm not working. As long as I had money sure. or something, you know, I was able to provide a gift. And a lot of times, like I would show up, you know, socially in, in the normal world, and we're taught this as children, in the normal world, when you go to a function, say a birthday party, a baby shower, a wedding, you know, something like that, you bring a gift. <laughs> and it got to where I could no longer bring a gift, so I stopped showing up, you know. That, oh, dude, like that, me me showing up was the gift. Yeah. I, well, I would be like, hey, I came. <laughs> I'm here. Lucky you. That's what my ego was. And right? I'm hardly drunk at all. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I am <laughs> I am special enough that me even being here is your gift. Yeah. And 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 it really gets I don't know, it gets it gets really confusing as far as what the hell we're doing out there. You know, we learn that our life is an illusion, that mm. that there's no nothing really in reality is really happening. We're just so consumed with self that everything we do out there is all about me. Mm. And so we're trying to put off this facade like we give a fuck about other people. And it, 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 at a deep level, we want to. You know, yeah. I know I did. Mm-hmm. I can look back, and one of the things that I really appreciate uh, Dylan's story is the amount of introspection he's done. And you can hear it in his right. story. Like You can hear that he, he broke down his life to figure out why he was thinking the way that he was thinking and why he was doing the things that he was doing. And that's something that I really try to strive for as well as like, I want to understand me. And so I look back and I look at all the ways that I was trying to be the right person in all the wrong ways. You know, I was, I was really, mm. I was really trying to be a good guy whilst still doing what I wanted ran on self will. Yeah. And, yeah, interesting. And, and I didn't really know how to, to differentiate those two things. I was trying to mix oil and water. Right. You know, I can't live a spiritual life and a selfish life in the same minute. Mm-hmm. Now that mm-hmm. can change from minute to minute. You know, I've, I've learned that in recovery that I can recognize that I'm living in selfishness and that what I'm doing with the best of intentions is really ultimately a play to get something that I want. And I can change that through some type of spiritual work and go back to where I'm living in um, non-selfish, you know, spiritual type, you know, doing some work in that area. But mm-hmm. it's still really confusing to to have those double and triple lives that we had back oh, then yeah. and come out of it over here on this side of the table and not have that pattern in our lives you know so yeah we got to break free of that well confusing is like an understatement because like i mean i was just so spiritually lost i was so confused and just absolutely torn on who i was as an individual 
you know, I had, I had a, a stable job, um, that I was miserable at. <laughs> I, <laughs> oh, do tell. Uh, right? I mean, I, yeah, no, we know. Yeah. yeah. And, and I had a, I had a house, I had a mortgage, right? Um, I had a, a car that ran. So you had money. Yeah. You, you had a place. I had a place. You had, uh, and then, and really like having those things, they, they, what, what I came to find out later in sobriety and just after doing some work was that these weren't things that I actually wanted. They were things that I felt like other people would, would look at me and accept me if I had. Right. Right. For like sure. I, I needed this stable job because if I didn't have a stable job, people would look down on me mm -hmm. and I needed a, I needed to have a house because that's what you do when you're, you know, 28 or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and what I came to find out was these things were just making me miserable, you know, like, right. because they, I didn't have them for the right reasons. Right. Like, um, and, and when I sobered up, one of the first things I did was sell that fucking house. <laughs> That's awesome. I was like, uh-uh. That's awesome. Yeah. I, because it honestly, like what it did, what it did to me and I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, this is just my story. Yeah. Like this is just my story. Like what it did is, is I, I made a certain amount of money at this job that I was miserable at. I needed to make that money in order to afford my mortgage. And so getting rid of the, the mortgage allowed me to then be open to a different career path. Right. So I, I sold the house and plus having those things as well, like the job, the, uh, the house, they really made me feel like I needed to be married. Like that was the next step. Okay. I've got the stable job. I've got the mortgage. I should find me a nice wife, you know, as you have. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have now, but this was nine years ago, yeah. 10 years ago. And, uh, and the, the women in my life were not quality women. You know, they right. were, they were just as dysfunctional as I was and just as playing the game and lost as I was. Yeah. Right. You know, and then, I would connect with these women and I would think that there was something there um, because obviously my thinking's 100% accurate at that time. And, and <laughs> no issue here. Right. Exactly. You know, and then it wouldn't go that way. And because, you know, like I am an alcoholic and I need this control. And then when things wouldn't go that way, like I'm out of control and I always had the drugs to fall back on. Right. Like there right. were so many times, like I would be dating somebody and it would look like, you know, things were headed towards one direction and then they would go the other direction. I'd be like, that's fine. Cause I got booze at home. Yeah. That's fine. I got pills. I'm going to take later. Yeah. Like, I'm not even tripping. Like I'll be fine. Yeah. We weren't connected emotionally anyway yeah exactly so i mean to say that i was like in a bad place is an understatement but because wouldn't you say wouldn't you say too that those relationships were part of that facade too like well I'm, that's exactly I'm, what I'm, i mean i'm supposed to have a relationship right yeah right? and i'm supposed right. to have a certain type of woman and, and she's supposed to look a certain yeah. way obviously right you know all all those things because that equals acceptability which is which is so weird when i look back at at the way I lived versus the way that I thought, like I didn't give a fuck if somebody had a house. Right. I didn't care. Right. I didn't care if they had a job. I didn't care if, if they were with a certain person. Like, for it, it's such a weird duality because 
Um, now I think most people kind of think that same way. Like they don't give a fuck. They just want me to be okay. Right. You know, they just want me to be happy and they don't care what my wife looks like or where I'm living or, you know, they want some security in my life, but they don't really don't care where I'm working or Mm -hmm. how much money I have in the account. They just care about my, my mental stability and spiritual well being. And so like I was kind of the same way out there. I didn't care. But Mm -hmm. for me, I knew that you cared about how much money I had, where I was living, what car I was driving, and who I was with. Right, right. And and and, and that's the thing is like, where where does that come from? Like, where does that notion that yeah. uh, that other people will accept me if I have those things? Right. Like, right. It's hard to say. And like, even in Dylan's story, like that was very very clear. Like, he assumed that as long as he had all these things. And, and and put those forward mm-hmm. as what was going on in his life that it was okay that what was behind you know happening behind closed yeah. doors was absolute chaos yeah and uh, and and I think that that's that's the thing with that like in my case as well like I always felt like hey man if I if I have these things then I'm okay like you know well yeah I mean when we're young and and impressionable like for for, for me growing up where I grew up, uh, I listened and, and I don't know why I, I had a group of friends that were my age and we always hung out with older people, hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, there was always this, and I, th- I think a lot of it had to do with our ability to get drugs. They wanted to get high. Sure. You know, we had things that they wanted. They trusted us to give us things that we wanted, but I would listen to them and it would be a conversation, something like this, like, did you see his girlfriend? She's fucking screaming. Right, right. And then I could look at that that lady and I could make a judgment based on her and the girl next to her and go, okay, she's screaming hot and she's not. Right. So now I know what, based on what this older person that I trust right. is feeding me this this information about, I can go, okay, that's that's what I need because... I bet that makes him feel good to be talked about like that. And I want to feel good to be talked about like that. So if I get those in, it was kind of the same thing with the house and yeah, the job and right. the money. You know, Did you see I was, his house? Did you yeah, see his car? Yeah. Do you see that? Right. Like, fuck, man. Let's, we're going over to so-and-so's house. He's got a badass pad to party. This? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he always throws good parties because he's got great money, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and I could go and I could visually see what that looked like. And I could see where I was at and I could make a judgment and be like, well, I'm not th- there. Right. I need to be there right. in order to have people talking about me and then I'll be happy. Yeah. And then I'll be happy. <laughs> then I'll be okay. It's always in the future. Yeah. You know? And so I think that's where it comes from, but how, like, fuck, how do we, how do we get away from that? Right? Like, how do we, how do we step away from, from mm-hmm. needing that validation and that social acceptability and understanding that, um, you know, that self-love is really where the value's at. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, I had to break. You hit know? the bottom. Yeah. Right? I had Get to dragged across. I, exactly. <laughs> like I, I had to go, I had to, you know, go through absolute hell to find a place where, you know, I could be okay with who I was once I started, once I stopped numbing myself and stop the self-destruction and then started doing some work on myself and started to see the value that I actually do hold and to see myself right-sized, right? Because Mm -hmm. my perception of myself was just so misproportioned from, from moment to moment. Like, you know, I, one day, one day I thought I was the absolute shit when this girl would deny me. And the next minute, you know, like 
um, I'm a piece of shit when I'm interacting with people at work, you yeah. know? So it's like, I, I never had a right sized view of myself. So once I started doing some work and I, I was able to look at myself right sized, I was actually able to to ask myself, what, what do I want? Because like you said, you know, I'd be in these situations where this dude would say, damn, did you see his wife? She is screaming. And all of a sudden I'm like, I guess that's what screaming is. Like, I guess that's what mm -hmm. screaming hot is. But I would forget about the fact, like, why don't I make my own decision? Do I think she's attractive? Like, right. is she attractive to me? And I, and I was able to apply that sort of concept to everything in my life where I was like, okay, A like after you got sober, after I got sober right. and only after I got sober. Right. Like, um, and it took, it took a little bit of time sober as well. Like, I don't know, six months, nine months, I started thinking about that stuff because I, I, I started to have the confidence in myself that I was capable of doing things outside what I had thought I was only capable of, right? right? Um, and so for me, it was like I looked, like I said, I looked at the house and I was like, is this important to me that I have a house? Like, is it, is, is it worth me having this job to keep this house? Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, it sure as fuck isn't like, yeah. let it go. Yeah. And so I did, you know, and then, um, the job, I fucking hate this job. I hate this job. <laughs> Why am I still here? Like, is it that important? I'm really to me? proud of you for doing what you did. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and, it was, and that's what we get, right? right? Like when we step out and we start following our, our passion, nobody's mad at us. We're right. not rejected. Nobody. I mean, there's the few people that are scared because yeah. they want mm -hmm. absolute security and it comes from a place of love. But most people are like, good for you. Right. Good for you chasing your fucking dream, getting rid of your house. Good for you going on right. a date with that girl. You know, good for you liking her, even though she's yeah. not, she's subpar. <laughs> <laughs> not really. My wife, your, my wife is your beautiful. Your wife is beautiful. Is smoking hot. And, um, we're, we're very fortunate um, because like, like you were sharing, as you were sharing, I was thinking about when I had all those things that I thought would equal social acceptability, mm -hmm. that would equal happiness. I was too, was miserable. Right. Like, you know, because after I got sober the first time when I, when I went through treatment at 24 and I got out and I went full time in the oil field, I was making oil field money. Yeah. You know, and I right. had a lot of time off. I had the trophy wife, mm -hmm. the Denali, the the new Ram fifteen hundred. I had the five bedroom house, the income. Wow, you know all all the things in a nice neighborhood in Sandy, Utah. All the things, everything looked good, all that stuff. And and as it all fell apart, I found that I don't need any of that shit. None of it really made me happy. It made me more stressful. I wasn't mm -hmm. ready for any of that shit. Mm -hmm. You know, it was all just. It was, it wasn't me. Yeah. And, and it, and it's even happened recently where, you know, um, as we've gone on our weight loss journeys, you know, I got down really low, like, like below what I ever thought I could in weight wise and, right. and my body was looking on point and, and I fell into the worst depression of my life. <laughs> Fucking miserable. Like I had to hit that second surrender in sobriety because I thought that having a certain body type was going to make me happy. Right. Um, and so this, this battle continues, you know, as I, as I navigate and, and learn how to do this stuff, but experimentation with it and being honest with myself is really, really the catalyst for it. 
right? Um, because there's still like today, there's a lot of things that I do that are not fucking socially acceptable, especially within my family. You know, the way we feed our kids. Mm, right. A lot of people are like, you're fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're crazy. Which is weird. It's weird that, that trying to find a healthier path isn't always accepted, you know, yeah. and getting so, you know, to be fair, my, my friends, when I got sober, were kind of the same way. They, they well, like, mm. I was just going to say, like, it all depends on who we surround ourselves with at the time. Like, because for like, if you, if you had a different family that was a little bit more health conscious, then that wouldn't be right. weird, right? It wouldn't right. be, it would be more social acceptable, socially acceptable. Yeah. Um, and ju- yeah, like, I mean, I had certain friends that, you know, were like, fuck, I guess you want to get sober. Like, I guess, or, you know, like my mom specifically, when I quit that job was just like, you're crazy. That, that's who I was you're thinking You're crazy. Of. Yeah. She, and, cause she was worried. Like, yeah. Well, cause she was, she was worried. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I think that it's, uh, it, it's it it is fascinating to me though that uh, that we we tend to think that you know as long as those around us are validating us as long as they think we're okay yeah we're okay yeah and boy that's just not the case yeah and you know as as we come around to this stuff I think and we've talked about this a lot of times on the show that vision for you is so important once you get sober mm. you know once. Well, I want to be I want to be fairly clear about this in my belief that anytime you poison your body to fix it is a bad idea. Mm. Right? Um there's those normal people that can have a drink right and it doesn't affect them the way that it affects me. Yeah. Right. It's not the same. But um I think that that drug and alcohol addiction is something that the first thing that you need to do in order to have a better quality of life is stop using and drinking. Mm-hmm. It's hard mm-hmm. at first, right? Going through the withdrawals and Dylan's going to tell you a little bit about his struggle with the withdrawals and how bad it was for him, but we've all gone through it. Every, every one of us that are on this side of the table now that are sober, whether it's 24 hours or 24 years had to go through that initial start mm-hmm. getting sober and as we go through sobriety and we get sober and we start finding out the things that don't work for us, it's important, I think, to put pen to paper and decide who you are and look at that and see if it's even true, right? Like, like you know, when we do a vision for you, and it's funny that this is coming up, but when we, when we do our own vision for ourselves, we write out a definition of who the highest version of ourselves would be. And a lot of those things are on there. Yeah. You know, who am I in my health journey? Who am I as a parent, you know, or, or who do I see my highest version being, you know, who am I as far as my home, my career, my, my friendships, you know, all those things. We put that on paper and then we can look at it and we have something to compare our current life to, to what we think that should look like. And then we navigate how to get there, mm-hmm. right? Because life's not always going to be fucking sunshine and rainbows, but it definitely doesn't have to be fear and misery all the time. No, I mean, there, especially on, especially on this side of the table, like one of the, one of the things that I've always, um, I come back to is like, I didn't sober up 
to just still be miserable. Yeah. Like for sure. Like I, I if if I'm going to be sober, I better be fucking happy too. Yeah. Like our friend Johnny always says, right. you know, if you don't get happy being sober, you're probably not going to be sober. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or you might be doing it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of you know, uh, and, and I, I'm with you, man. I don't, I don't want to live a life of, of gloom and dread. I did that. That's the thing yeah. is I've already done that. Trying, like, trying to be socially acceptable. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> like, like, remember trying to drink socially so that you would be accepted and, and fucking, okay, I'll go out with you guys, but I'm only going to have one drink because I got to work tomorrow. And like, we're fucking absolutely convinced. And we go in the first two drinks, we kind of drink like a gentleman and then, ah, fuck you. <laughs> I no longer care about social acceptability. And then we're that guy that everybody's taking care of or avoiding or whatever. And then we don't get called back. Like, but, but that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to, to wear the mask of social acceptability. Okay. Yeah. And now a lot of times what I see happen and the dangerous part of it is that people will have nothing and they'll get sober. And the blessings of sobriety will be so abundant mm-hmm. that they think that equals recovery. Right. And, right. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. for me, for me, I have to recognize that the biggest blessing and the greatest gift that I have in my life is that the obsession to use and drink has been lifted from me. It's something that I cannot buy. You, you, you couldn't buy this from me. You could come at me with a billion dollars and say, can I buy your sobriety? Can I buy your, um, your freedom from alcohol from, from the obsession to drink? And there's no way that I could sell that to you because it's mine. Yeah. You know, so it's priceless. And everything from there is gravy, right? It, but I've been on, on that side where I thought certain things would be acceptable as recovery, where like, you know, my service position, mm. you know, people seeing me in a certain service position, that's acceptable, it's social, now I'm not working the steps. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not working with my sponsor. Or I'm putting everything into my career. Right, you know? right. And now I have two vans and a car and a truck and a business. And, and those are all blessings of me getting sober, right? But that, those things are not recovery. Yeah, that's not right. Yeah, You know, even though those are, are, are appreciated, people love that I'm there, for me... You know, the recovery comes from me treating my alcoholism as if it's a disease. And if I don't do that, then I end up in that place where I was at not too long ago of depression, fear, anxiety without taking a drink. Mm-hmm. And, and that feeling is what I wanted to get sober for. Right. Because I felt that way. And so the blessings can come really quick and we can get tricked into thinking that's what recovery is, are the things that we have in our lives. Yeah. You know, and I, I, they're great. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong; those things are, are great. I don't, I don't, I don't think sobriety was meant for us to not have those things. Those things come along, but recovery for me is a self-love and spirituality where I'm able to connect with the innermost self and be okay with who I am in this moment through the work that I was able to do. The obsession to use and drink has been lifted, which is gift number one. 
the ability to live a sane life and be responsible is gift number two. Coming to believe that I didn't do it on my own mm-hmm. is definitely a gift, right? For me, that's a yeah. huge gift. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a lot of people come in without it. And then um, being able to clean my house of all the resentments and fear and and harming of other people, whether it be sexually or non-sexually, like being able to have the courage to put that on paper, for me, that's recovery, you know. And as I do those things and I become the highest version of myself when I when I go into step five and I, it, you know, I, I talk about the nature of my wrongs, the selfishness and and how I get confused with what's acceptable and what's mm-hmm. going to make me okay. And I can look at that and I can discuss it with another person. I can, you know, discuss it with a power greater than myself and admit those things and then move into letting those things go through six and seven put the people I've harmed on a list, go out and make amends, learn how to pray and meditate, continue to take personal inventory and then share this stuff with other people. For me, that's recovery and everything else outside of that is gravy. Yeah. And I'm more accepted through the honest persona of myself, who I really am Mm -hmm. not clouding it with drugs and alcohol, not, not trying to fix what's inside here with outside shit. I'm way more accepted and loved. The people are more comfortable and and I'm just welcomed at a higher level. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that that, that first of all, very well said, everything is just beautiful. What I want to touch on is that's, I mean, that's just a testament to um, how broken our thinking was, right? Is that we, we assumed that if we had these things that we, we would be accepted and that other people would think well of us and that we would be perceived as contributing members of society and therefore held to a higher standard mm-hmm. um, and, and, and uh, held to a higher level of prestige. Um, and what we've come to find out is that by doing everything that you mentioned, because I, and I'm glad that you said that because I think that there can be some confusion that when we do get the blessings that we get in recovery, that all of a sudden we start accumulating some material things or um, we get a new career path or whatever the case is that we start to become socially acceptable um, in that regard. And then again, we start confusing that social acceptability with recovery, with personal recovery. And, uh, and, and that's not the case. Like the people around me, um, the, the people around me that I need to surround myself with could give a shit less what car I drive, what house I have, you know, what job I work. Like the people that do care about that, that are going to worry and are, and are, going to choose whether or not they want to hang out with me or um, spend time with me based on those other things are not people I need to surround myself no. with anyways. They're broken. Yeah, exactly. But, and that's just the thing is like, it, it, it occurs to me that they never did care. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they probably never did care what house I, I lived in or what I drove or whatever the case was. Like I, I thought they did. Yeah. Right? Like I assumed everybody cared based on those 
brief statements people would make every once in a while. Oh, yeah. look at his house. Oh, look at her. Look at his wife. You yeah. Know? Um, and so I assumed that that was important and that it would make me feel good to have those things. And, uh, and, and now like I get to connect with people and I get to prove myself and my value and my worth to those individuals based on my integrity, based on my ability to take accountability, based on, um, you know, my persistence in continuing to do work based mm -hmm. on, you know, just personal characteristics, right? Yeah. Um, and these are the things that we should be basing those relationships on, not whether or not you fucking have a Ferrari, you know? Um, and if anybody has a Ferrari it's out there, not, hit me up. Yeah, it's not about, that's not what we're saying. Like if, right. you, if you have gained those things and you have spirituality, self-love and, and those things, wonderful yeah because i do appreciate the things that i have well like, and that's the just the thing package. it's like we're not saying like i'm not i'm not saying that like you you fucked up by getting those things right like what i'm saying is like what we have found now is that by having these other things having the internal things and having those quality characteristics and relationships based on those quality characteristics the other things will fall into place yeah like all, all those material things will come and you'll have those too, but that's not, that's not where we find value. Right. That's not who we base ourselves on anymore. Yeah. Um, or at least it shouldn't be. Right? Yeah. Those are all things that we can sell. We value, like you were saying, the virtues mm -hmm. and relationships that we have, you know, the fact, the fact that, uh, you are here present through your wife's entire pregnancy every doctor's appointment, right. every class, you know, those are, those are things that I value. You know, when, when Avery was pregnant with all three of my kids, I made every doctor's appointment with her for mm -hmm. all three of them. Mm -hmm. I think there was one that I missed and I was fucking upset. Yeah, me too. I was I've, upset I've about it, you know, and, and being home for my kids every day, you know, getting to wake them up in the morning, getting to put them in bed at night, having them watch me grow, being honest with them, working through their struggles you know, getting married, having a, having a wedding with, with a woman that I love, um, that is also sober, having friends like you getting to meet people like Dylan, you know, the, and Donnie from, from the not so anonymous podcast and in this entire recovery community as they share their stories, we can really hear what they value and how they gain that based on the life that they had comparing it to the life that they do have mm -hmm. off of what they're looking for out there and what they're gaining through what they're doing the work with now, right? Like, like having all those things, I have to just say one more, you know, again, having the obsession of drugs and alcohol removed from my mind, the compulsion to go out and use is priceless. It's priceless. It consumed every, every fiber of my being for a very long time in my life. And I didn't know how to get out of it. And until I started doing this work, I didn't think I was going to be able to get out of it. But now that it's gone, I just want to share with everybody how I've done that right. in a way that hopefully resonates with them and so that we can connect and more people can be saved and find out who they really are. That's really the mission of this podcast and the reason that we have people like Dylan come on here and tell his story. You know, it, it, That's what we want is as many stories as we can of this understanding that there's so many times where I thought what I had was going to make me okay. Right. Yeah.
so many times I thought who I was with was going to make me okay. I thought how you saw me was going to make me okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I mean, Dylan, Dylan has a great delivery, passion, 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 passion. For sure. Yeah. And, and, uh, and just a lot of energy in, in his statement and his work and, and what he's doing now. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's way, I, I feel very fortunate to, to, you know, have, having met these guys and to continue to work with these guys and collaborate and, yeah. and, and I can't wait for everybody to hear yeah. his so, story. What do you say? Should Let's we? do it. Yeah. So without further ado, here's Dylan's story. Well, my name is Dylan and I am a drug addict. Um, I thank you so much for having me on the show. It's an absolute honor to join you guys. Um, you know, just before I get into the story, I just, today has been a beautiful day for me, man. I just want to share some of the blessings of today alone, um, that the program has allowed me to experience. I woke up this morning and I went to the gym. I took care of myself physically, mentally. Um, I I prayed today. I took care of myself spiritually. I got to go and watch my daughter do her private dance lesson. I got to be there present as a father for my daughter to watch her do her private dance lesson. Um, I got to work today from home doing stuff that I actually enjoy. You know, I got to, you know, help people out with their homes, with their living situation, a roof that is very important to them. People trust me with that transaction. I got to work with a sponsee. I got to take a sponsee who has been struggling to get clean for years. And I got to take him um, through some step work today, this kid that I've known for a long time. So it was an absolute honor to sit there and do step work with this kid who means so much to me. Um, after this, right after this recording, I'm heading right over to a treatment facility to do H&I work and carry the message there as well. I'm absolutely beyond blessed. And it is strictly because I get out of the way the best that I can most of the time, try not to make a mess of God's will in my life. And I work my 12 step program with the sponsor. I work with sponsees. Um, and, and most importantly, I don't pick up today, no matter what. And those blessings, the day that I just had is a direct result of the, of that process right there. And I wanted to share that because it was not always like that for me whatsoever. There was a long time where I was miserable and I absolutely hated myself. I hated life. And I had no idea how to get out of this addiction that I was living in. I was uh, I was born right here in Phoenix, Arizona, more specifically the Maryville area. I was born to two teenage parents. My mom was 17 and my dad had just turned 19 years old. There was a lot of partying in the house, a lot of drinking, a lot of drugging, um, as kids would do, you know. And, and I always like to preface anything about that I say about my childhood by saying that I do not believe that I had a bad childhood. I believe that I had an inappropriate childhood. Um, And I think there's a really big difference. And I also would like to say that I think you could have raised me with the most sober family in the world. And I still believe that I'd be an alcoholic today. Having said all that and uh, laid the, you know, preface everything out. um, When I was young, an event occurred when I was about two years old, there was an event occurred that I believe shaped my life to this very day. My dad, who was 19 at the time, well, when he had me, so my dad was about 20, 21 years old at the time, lost his little brother in a tragic car accident. This set my dad off on a pretty uh, downward spiral, uh, my grandmother included. My dad drank himself uh, into a hole, fell into a massive depression. My grandmother never recovered from that depression, that drug addiction, and she died at an early age from it. I didn't see what it was like 
to handle trauma in a in a in a healthy way. I never watched anybody in my family truly talk about their feelings or deal with these emotions or deal with childhood trauma or or deal with the things at hand that cause us to drink or drug um, in the first place. I never seen that. I seen what it was like to stuff emotions. And that's what I would eventually go on to reenact. When I was about four years old, I was introduced to suicide. My uncle comes up to me one day. I'm in a room. It's just me and him. And he says, Dylan, it's time to kill myself. He swallows a bottle of pills. The next thing that I remember, his head smacks the corner of, a, of an end table. And I watch him kind of pass out unconscious. Um, I panicked. I absolutely panicked. And I ran to my grandmother at the time. And I let her know what I had just seen. I told this story to my wife not too long ago, because as I'm continuing to stay clean, as I'm continuing in my meditation, continuing in my journaling and just my search for uh, search for for root causes so I can address them. These things are starting to pop up. And I told my, my wife this story. One of the questions that she asked me was, did anybody talk to you afterwards? My response was no. I don't remember anybody coming and talking to me and explaining what had happened or maybe trying to make me understand in a way that is healthy for a child of that age to understand. Again, it was just ignored. Most like, you know, pretty much like every other thing, you know, we just kind of stuffed it away, didn't talk about it, pretend it didn't happen, pretend it didn't exist, and just hope that the problem would go away by itself. That's how I was introduced to suicide. It was an unsuccessful attempt, but as far as what I had seen and the, the effect that it had on me, it, it was there. Growing up, I had really one rule, you know, there and, and, and again, there was a lot of love in my house, though, you know, despite all the craziness, all the party and whatever, there was always a lot of love in my house. I knew my parents loved me and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, but I, I pretty much had one rule and that was to get straight A's in school. If I got straight A's in school, I was, for the most part, allowed to do pretty much as I pleased. I, uh, I was seven years old you know, going to the Warp Tour, which is a huge rock, like punk rock, well, what used to be a punk rock festival, a huge music festival. Um, I'm seven years old and I'm going by myself with my friends. The youngest one of them, or the my friend was 13 years old. He had a buddy who was 15, who had a driver's permit, whose mom let him take the car. And that's how we would get to the Warp Tour. So I was allowed to do a lot of things that now looking back at it is pretty insane. You know, I have a six-year-old, well, my daughter's about to turn six um, at the end of September. And I cannot imagine sending her to a concert with her friends from the neighborhood at all. So um, looking back at it, I, I now realize the inappropriate actions that were taking place. Although I will say it's still to this day, one of the best days of my entire life, being at the work tour at seven years old by myself. I had an absolute blast crowd surfing in the mosh pit. Uh, I was all probably 50 pounds. So they were just tossing me, you know, I loved it. Right. Like I, I felt comfortable in a, that chaotic atmosphere. But uh, during this time, I also feel like a lot of my character defects that would one day try to kill me were born out of necessity during this. I feel like my control freak tendencies had to kick in so I could keep everything under control. My ego had to be big enough to tell me that I'm badass enough to handle this situation, that I'm okay, and that I'm completely safe in this crowd of thousands of people without my parents, and I get separated from my friends for half the day, right? Like, I had to tell myself, and I had to keep myself calm in that situation. That report card allowed me to do a lot of stuff. 
And what I now realize is that report card was my first mistake at thinking that social acceptability equaled personal recovery. So if I had something to show you, if I could show you the report card, I could show you my straight A's. That means I could also tell you to fuck off. That means I could also tell you that I don't have a problem. I can do whatever it is that I see fit. I'm sorry, you can't do the same. I can handle my shit. Maybe you should learn how to handle yours. And that's the attitude that I had. And that's the attitude that one day tried to take my life. I carried on with that. But as I got a little bit older, man, that void, that void, that void started kicking in. That loneliness started kicking in. You know, I had friends. I was a three-sport athlete year-round, basketball, football, baseball year-round. I was on a skateboard from the time that I could crawl. I started making music in eighth grade. I had all of these people around me, you know, with all these different activities, and I had friends, but I always felt incredibly lonely. I always felt that disconnect from people, like I didn't have a place, like I didn't fit in anywhere. You know, I didn't know who my people were. So I was content by myself in my room getting high at a very young age. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I, I I just continued getting in trouble, man. And, and after a while, I could give a fuck about the straight A's. All I wanted to do was make sure that I graduated and that my parents didn't find out that I was ditching class again for the most part, you know. And uh, I did that. I did graduate, you know, by manipulation. I, I manipulated the counselors, the teachers, convinced them this and that. And, you know, I have no idea how I did it exactly, but I got the same piece of paper that everybody else got. So now I'm thinking I could cut corners. I can find loopholes and get the same exact reward as you. Fuck off. I ain't doing that work. You can do it. I ain't, that ain't for me. Right. Now I think I'm special. I think I'm unique. I think consequences that apply to everybody else do not apply to me. My attitude was absolutely horrible. You know, and in high school, I was actually introduced to the 12 step program. Um, I got my first felony at 15 years old and I was on probation, ordered to drug classes, um, meetings, all of that stuff, you know, and I remember one thing and one thing only from that entire experience. My probation officer said, Dylan, do you know why you're here? I said, well, I'm here because I got uh, I got arrested uh, with drugs and all that stuff. And he says, well, no, that's not why you're here. You're here because you told on yourself. You're here because you got caught. I didn't remember a single share. I didn't see, remember a single person speaking about the warning signs that, you know, they were seeing with me. I don't remember any of it. I pretty much watched my future flash before my eyes at 15 years old, and I couldn't recognize any of it. The only thing that I remembered was him saying, don't tell on yourself. Don't admit to anything. And that's what my alcoholic mind took away from that at that very young age, having no idea that I was an alcoholic at this time. So that's exactly what I did. When I graduated high school, I uh, got this phone sales job, this cold calling, literally cold calling people wherever the fuck they were, right? And selling them online websites. I became really good at this really fast. All of a sudden, my skills of manipulation and that whole chameleon thing that a lot of us uh, adapt to came in handy really quick. And at 18 years old, I kind of like just started killing it in this company uh, by the time I was 19, I started my own company in my bedroom. The worst possible thing happened to me when I started that company. I became successful. When I became successful, my ego blew up to an even more dangerous level. Now, I don't have the report card to show you, but I got the bank account to show you. 
My next mistake at thinking social acceptability equals personal recovery. So now I can look at you and say, man, my bank account's better than your parents' bank account. You could fuck off this and this and this and that, right? This egotistical little shit who really didn't know anything about fucking life. But I'm sitting here running my mouth, drinking and drugging all damn day, thinking I don't have a problem because I can speak good to some strangers on the phone, right? Eventually, my alcoholism started catching up with me. Eventually, that business that I was so proud of got shut down, right? And eventually, I went from having, you know, what I what I prided myself on on this bank account and going on these vacations and these trips at a young age to now I'm the kid showing up first thing in the morning with the exact change to buy a tall can from the exact same uh, convenience store clerk every single morning, making that walk of shame. My alcoholic mind told me that I did not have a problem with alcohol. My mind told me that I no longer had that shield of social acceptability to say that I didn't have a problem with alcohol and I needed to change that. I needed to go back and make more money. I needed to go and do something because I needed to show everybody that I was actually just fine. So what did I do? Just like the drug addict that I am, I went from doing absolutely nothing. When I shut that business down, all I did was drink and play golf. I went from that to... I went to real estate school, started working full time, and I started going to college full time. All or nothing, right? College wasn't for me. I, I you know, I got my credits or whatever. The college wasn't for me, but I, I decided that real estate was going to stick around. And I'm working at this golf course. During this phase of my life, I'm doing cocaine, Adderall, smoking weed, and drinking alcohol like a fish every single day. Not one time did I ever think, hey, maybe I have a problem with substance abuse. Not one time. By the time I got my real estate license and I'm starting to sell some houses, I am now reintroduced to painkillers. When these painkillers got reintroduced to my life, that was that was a game changer for me. All of a sudden, I started having these thoughts. Maybe I don't have this under control. And I remember this one specific day, man, I was taking a shower. I just got home from work and I was taking a shower and I was calling my drug or and I was uh, I had sent my drug dealer a text message. And I remember sitting in that shower praying that that dealer did not get back to me because it was it was almost as if my soul, my spirit, whatever the hell you want to call it, had that feeling like this is different, man. This is different. You know, we're getting into some dangerous fucking water here. I didn't listen to it, of course, because why would I? I'm a drug addict. And I was refusing to admit complete defeat at that point. I go on and I get hooked. Just, I was hooked on everything else before, but I wasn't withdrawn like I was like I was withdrawn from these opiates when I didn't have them. You know, that was kind of like the tell. That's when like that, that's one of those lines crossed. I remember a couple of times uh, when I would first uh, withdraw from alcohol. You know, I really didn't know what that was. But now this is becoming really apparent when I'm withdrawing from these opiates. I decide I want to start trying to get clean. But I'm not going to use the help of God. I'm not going to use the help of a 12-step of a program. I don't need a sponsor. I don't need all that shit that you guys need to get clean. Check the resume. I make shit happen, right? Like, that's still where my fucking egotistical mind took me. I don't need help. I can do this. Just give me a couch in a couple of days. I'll be on my way. And that's what I thought, right? So I tried with John. Time and time again, I tried to get clean by myself. 
Time and time again, I failed. Time and time again, I was ready to chop my legs off because of the restless legs. I was sweating through my sheets in and out of the hot bathtub because I can't regulate my body temperature. Shit and piss and puking time and time and time again, but I still don't need help. Right. And I'm thinking of all kinds of crazy shit at this point. So then I decide that I am ready to go to a meeting, but I'm not willing to work the steps. I'll go to the meeting because I think I need to talk about some shit, but I'm not going to work the steps. That's too much work. I agreed to get sober. I did not agree to work at staying sober. All right. So I go, and I even get a sponsor. This dude comes up to me, says, hey, Dylan, I'm going to sponsor you. I said, cool. I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. I didn't know what a sponsor was. So he says he's going to sponsor me, he says, call me every day. So I start calling him occasionally, right? But now I got my social acceptability back. Now I can tell everyone, no, I go to meetings. I have a sponsor. I have this. I'm good. Like, you don't have to worry about me. Meanwhile, I'm still getting high. All right. One day my sponsor says, Dylan, man, when you're withdrawing, I know it's uncomfortable, but you gotta, you, you gotta keep moving. You gotta stay moving. Right. Still not willing to trust God, still not willing to work any steps. I decide the problem is I don't have Suboxone. If I'd had Suboxone, I would have gotten clean a long time ago. That's the problem. So what do I do? I go and get Suboxone and my insane drug addict mind tells me that Suboxone and a round of golf is what's going to take for me to get clean that day. All right. So I live in a town called Avondale. I drive 45 minutes away to a city called Chandler to go play golf at this casino. I take this Suboxone on the golf course and I'm teeing off from the time I tee off. And I don't know if people listening to this play golf, but you tee off. And if you're anywhere blessed enough to find hit, hit a somewhat straight shot, you end up in, in some grass for your second shot. All right. In the fairway. Well, by the time from the time I teed off to the time I got to my second shot, I've now thrown myself into the worst precipitated withdrawal that I have ever been in, in my entire life. I'm with my uncle. I'm with my uh, my cousin. I don't say shit except for, hey, man, I got to go. That's it. I jump in the golf cart. And because why wouldn't I be? I am at the furthest part of the golf course from the parking lot. Golf courses are not small. So I got a ways to go. This golf cart is not moving very fast. I got a ways to go. And I am deathly ill at this point. I finally get back to the parking lot. I finally get into my Jeep and I get to the busy intersection. There's this intersection right off of the freeway, hundreds of cars. What happens when I withdraw? I can't really control my bodily functions. So what do I do? I put that motherfucker in park right on that main crossroad right there. And I go to the corner and here in Arizona, we got a lot of tumbleweed looking bushes. I find the one tumbleweed looking bush that I can find. I get behind it and there's hardly any cover at all, but here I am shitting, just shitting in front of hundreds and hundreds of cars passing by through that time. It is a busy intersection off of the freeway to a casino and golf course. All right. If that's not embarrassing enough, I finally get back to my Jeep. I hit up my dealer. Hey, man, we have an emergency here, right? I need you to meet me ASAP. Problem is I still got to drive a half hour in that condition to meet up with my guy. I get to this filthy McDonald's in this bad part of Phoenix, but I don't have anything to do my drugs with. And at this point, my drug of choice is now switched to fentanyl. All right. And they come in these little fucking pills, fentanyl. It's this little devil, Satan in a pill form. It comes, uh, you know, at least in this part of the country. I don't have anything to smoke them. I don't have anything to crush them up and store them because I'm getting clean. Right. So I threw out all my shit. So I resort to eating them. I chew about six of these things up before I'm finally able to walk again. 
I am that deathly ill. I am that weak. I crawl into this McDonald's bathroom. And this is a filthy place. There's piss and shit all over the place. And I'm just laying in it because that's how weak I was. That's where I was. And I remember staring at that floor thinking, how in the hell did this happen? How did I ever let it get this bad? This was not my intention. I did not choose to do this. Choices were gone in my life. But how did I ever let this happen? I had straight A's. I had a business. I had goals. I had dreams. How did I ever let this get this bad? I wish I could tell you that was the day that I decided to get clean, but it wasn't. I had to go on and continue and beat my ass for a little while longer. During this time in my life, my wife and I are adopting my niece. All right. I adopted my niece because I believe she didn't deserve drug addicts as parents or biological parents were active addicts only to give her a drug addict as a parent. Social acceptability. The world can look at my Facebook and say, man, Dylan's a great guy. He adopted his niece. He's doing so good. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Dylan's trying not to kill himself. Right. That social acceptability, always looking for it and always life threatening for me. So one day. After going on and on and on, living that exhausting hell, that that life that I just, I'm so grateful I'm not living today. I'm sitting in my daughter's bedroom and my wife comes up to me and she asks me, Dylan, are you ready to go to treatment? She has asked me that question time and time again. And every single time I said, no, I'm not going. I don't want to go. I don't need to go. I can do this on my own. And I really thought it, that's the fucked up part about it, man, is I, genuinely thought that sweating it on my couch, I could do it. I like, I genuinely meant it. I I really, really did. And I really wanted to get clean. I really did. I just didn't know how. So time and time again, I would try. And time and time again, I would fail. Time and time again, I woke up the very next day just to put myself right back in that self-induced prison that cost me $300 a day to get out of. And I had no idea how to get out of it because I was relying on my own knowledge, my own strength and my will. I looked at my wife and I agreed to go to treatment. Prior to this, I had planned on committing suicide. I thought the only way out of my addiction was to end my life. I, I see no other way out. So I was going to write a letter to my family. I was going to write a letter to my wife. I was going to write a letter to my daughter explaining to her that daddy loves you so much. I'm so sorry that I can't be there to watch you grow up. I was going to drive up to Prescott, Arizona, and I was going to end my life. I agreed to go to treatment. My wife says, great, I'm going to find you a place. She comes back, says, Dylan, I found this place in Prescott, Arizona that I'm going to send you to treatment to. I believe God was working in my life long before I allowed that relationship to blossom. So on July 17th, man, I started my last fentanyl pill in a QT bathroom and I drove up to Prescott, Arizona. July 18th, 2019 is my sobriety date. It is a date that I hold close to my heart, a date that take my birthday. I don't even give a shit about my birthday, but my sobriety date, like that is like everything to me. I'm so proud of that date, you know, and uh, I wish I wish I could say that, you know, I was it was smooth sailing from there. But even in detox, man, I still had those reservations. I still had um, that thought that, you know what, I, I, I don't think I'm like these people though. Like I'm not these people. Like I just stubbed my toe for 10 fucking years, 15 years. Right. Like, I, I don't think I need all this stuff still, but I do think I need their help to get clean. All right. I didn't think I needed their help to stay clean at this point. Up to this point, I hadn't had the strength to talk to my daughter. Like emotionally, I just couldn't do it. The thought of her voice would just break me down um, while I was in detox. So a week or two goes by and I finally think I have the emotional strength to talk to her. 
And uh, the very first thing that she tells me, she's three years old at this time. My wife puts her on the phone. The very first thing she says is, Daddy, Daddy, are you finally coming home tonight? And when I had to tell her, baby, no, Daddy can't come home tonight. I still have some more work to do. It absolutely broke me. And I'm so grateful for that phone call because that was like that literal and metaphorical hit my knees moment. And like the light switch went on, man. And I was... I came to this place of surrender. I came to this place of acceptance and I accepted your, you know what? I am a drug addict. I do need help. I'm right where I belong. And these are my people. And when I accepted that and I surrendered to that fact, dude, my beautiful life was about to blossom, you know, and I'm not saying it wasn't difficult. It hasn't been difficult, but like in the 12 and 12 and step one, it talks about, that like that powerlessness, that surrender, that you know humiliation is going to be the bedrock upon which we build our foundation. And I had no idea of it, but that was absolutely about to go down in my life. And when I accepted all of that, I started connecting with people again. All of a sudden, these guys who were at my sober living house while I was in treatment became like brothers. And we started having intimate conversations, beautiful conversations, vulnerable conversations. And I started connecting with people on a way that in a way that I never thought possible. And I never had before, you know, and when I left treatment, the very first thing that I did, I went to a meeting and I fucking stayed at those meetings. I was at two, three, four meetings a day, minimum, at minimum of two a day. Right. And that, let me tell you that gap between the new meeting and the seven o'clock meeting, that was a long damn gap for me in those early recovery days. I was like, holy shit. But I did whatever I could do to get there, man, like and stay there. I would sleep in the parking lot waiting for meetings to start. Whatever it was, I was going to lunch, uh, fellowshipping all day, every day. I was barely home because I was always with other addicts trying whatever I could, doing whatever it took to stay clean that day because I was terrified to go back to that living hell that I, that I was in. I, I go on and I, and I, and I just, I, I, man, I rough it out, dude. But you know what? I talked about it and I found other addicts who I related to and th- those guys saved my life. I started working my steps with the sponsor. I started doing H&I and I started carrying the message to people who were still struggling in treatment, you know, and I and I just started working with people. Me and my guys, Goomer, Jordan, Donnie, man, we started the Not So Anonymous podcast. I think Donnie was the only one who even had a year of sobriety at this point. We're just having these most insane conversations outside of the meeting hall, talking about the hilarious shit we did, but then like in the same conversation, laughing our asses off about this insanity to having the most vulnerable real talk ever. And it was just mind blowing, you know, and we just wanted to share that with people. And that's how I started staying clean, man, that camaraderie, that fellowship. You know, you fast forward to today, I went through a lot of shit in recovery, but I'm so grateful for it. Like, I'm so grateful for the pain of addiction. I'm so grateful for the pain of early recovery because it forced me to start building my foundation, a foundation that I still rely upon today. You know, like I said, I got to do some real estate stuff today. I got to be a dad today. I got to be a sponsor today. I got to, I get to be a speaker today. I get to go to H&I, and, you know, and do some more 12-step stuff today. Like, my life is so fulfilled with those type of things, man. And, you know, and it's it's a blessing. And I really I really can't describe it, but it's only once I'm willing to humble myself before God humbles me and set my ego, my pride aside, which is still difficult for me to do at times, a lot of times, you know, but when I can do those things, like I get to experience some really, really cool shit, you know, and obviously there's so much more, dude, but I, I'll, I'll cut it with that. And, uh, you know, you can hear a lot more of my story 
um, on my podcast, Not So Anonymous. You can follow us at Not So Anonymous Podcast. Um, me and all my guys, man, have some 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 pretty good stuff, you know, and it's a lot of camaraderie. And if there's anything that I want to convey is the fellowship, the brotherhood and camaraderie that I have found in recovery, um, because I am a subscriber to that 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 cliche classic saying, man, the uh, the opposite of addiction is connection. I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, so thank you so much for having me on today, Willie. The opposite of addiction is connection. I yeah, love it. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I, I think I've heard that a, a thousand times. And even though it might sound cliche, it is absolutely true. I've, I've found that to be true. It, in my it's experience. weird how many cliches I've never heard. You never heard that one? I don't think so. Really? But, but I like it, you know, and he said, he said so many things that I appreciate and I could, I could identify with so much of his story, especially with the young, the young addiction, Mm -hmm. you know, starting out young. Yeah. Well, well, what did he say? He said he had an inappropriate. I love that. I've used that a few times since, since we record, since we did the war story over zoom and I'd never heard that before, but it connected with me so well. Um, and when I share that with people, it's, it's because it's so appropriate for, mm-hmm. especially, you know, I can identify with that. Like I didn't have a bad childhood, but right. it was super inappropriate. Right. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. And being exposed to so many things at such a young age, just like he was, you know, but his delivery is on point. And it was, it was great to get to meet him in person and talk to him over zoom. And, and, you know, we had a lot going on at the, at the roller skating thing, but, it was so nice to meet these people and connect mm-hmm. with everybody on that level. So, yeah, what do you think, man? Yeah, it was it was great. Uh, I I I love the way that he spoke. Um, I did definitely identify with a lot of his story. Again, you know, sort of a, a an opiate guy like myself. Um, and, uh, and did you get into fentanyl, or was that no, kind of no, before no. Your time? I, I mean, it it was before my time, but it was also. Um, yeah, it wasn't really around. Like it was, it was at the tail end of yeah. of of my use, and it was hard to find. Couldn't really get it back then. Mm. Um, but no, I never, I never tried fentanyl. And I hear things, you know, about all these new super drugs they're coming out with, and I'm yeah. like, man, I quit too soon. <laughs> no, you didn't. That's another thing, though, right? Like, right. I like, never got to try chocolate yeah. whiskey. Yeah, the you know the devil's cut. Right. Fuck. Wasn't it you that was talking about that? Yeah, me yeah. and me and Harvey. That's right. But yeah. I mean, it's it's just bullshit the the fucking lie that we tell ourselves, you know, because really like what he talked about at the very beginning, you know, the blessings of recovery, like the blessings of his life mm-hmm. um are are on this side of the table. You know, so fuck fuck the devil's cut. Fuck fat and all. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, listen to where he came from and you can you can hear throughout his story why I said, you know, you can tell that he's done a lot of retro, you know, introspection mm-hmm. and, and looked back at his life to, to try to understand why he acted the way that he did and why he thought the way that he did. You know, I got in trouble when I was 15, too. And I love I love what he said, because I could identify with the only thing he heard was I got to get better at not getting caught. Right. He didn't hear anything else. There for I don't know how how many weeks or months I could treat it. Nothing else is remembered except yeah. for I got to be better at not getting caught. We hear what we want, and you know, yeah, mm-hmm. and and what we I guess need at the time. I don't know, man, because I remember when I and and I'll try to make this brief. But when I was a child, I had to be four or five, six years old. 
my brother and his friends took this guy's car that was staying with us. They took his car and they wouldn't let me go for a ride with them. They were all at like an Amway convention or something. They took the car and I was just a, a little, little kid, but they wouldn't let me ride. And so I told on them and the entire fucking neighborhood found out <laughs> and I was branded a fucking narc. Oh yeah. You know, uh, at, yeah. at five, six years old. Well, shame you. Shame you. Fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody's beating me up and shit. You fucking narc. Ain't hanging out over here. Can't smoke with us. Oh, it sucked. You know, made sure that shit never fucking happened again. You know, and and kind of the same thing. We get that that seared impression of, of what our problem was. Yeah. You know, because we're told you're not in here because you got in trouble. You're in here because you got caught getting in trouble. Boom. Okay, heard that. Make sure that shit don't I'll apply happen that again. to the yeah. rest of my life. What I will do is make sure that everybody sees that I'm doing okay. Right. So that I'm socially acceptable. That way column A is covered. I can handle column B and do whatever I want column C. Like, yep. Or, you know, type thing. I can identify with all that. And I love, the, I love his delivery of it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do really appreciate the way he started out his story because, um, you know, it... It can get lost uh, sometimes with these war stories. Um, Twenty minutes is 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 such a fast time that sometimes we have people that will come on and they'll they'll tell their story and and then before they get to the good stuff, it's time to wrap up. You yeah. Know? Um, so I almost like that he that he you know delivered his blessings first because we do have so much to be grateful for. And, yeah. And as does he and. And, uh, and it was great to hear him start the conversation that way and then go back to where he came from. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I, that I really heard was just this childhood trauma that came from his experience with his uncle. Yeah. And pretty fucked up. I can only imagine, you know, what that puts in your, in your head. And, and I know that, you know, we, the people around us are, are well-meaning people, but not to have anybody explain that for you or put any context um, into that situation is uh, is really it's mind boggling to me. And I think, um, you know, being being now where I've got a child coming within the next few weeks. Yeah. yeah, um, It really just breaks my heart. And and sort of on that same note what I really like, what really moved me in his story is when he talked about being in treatment and, and his daughter, yeah. you know, asked him, daddy, are you coming home now? Yeah. And his daughter's adorable, by the way, we, we were able to meet her and his wife at, uh, at the, um, skating convention and, uh, just, you know, he's got a, he's got a beautiful family, but to hear that, you know, come out of the mouth of his daughter and, and, and that was enough for him to go, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. You know, all right, I got it. I got to get better. And I, I can, I can feel that, you yeah. know, I can sense that and I can, um, put myself in that situation and just say, man, that would, that would crush me. But it, it ultimately, it takes what it takes. Yeah. And, and if that's what it takes, you know, to, to finally, you know, have the motivation and the strength, um, then so be it. So be it. Yeah. You know? So really appreciate it. Can't that do this shit story. alone. You know, he tried. And yeah, fortunately, fortunately we have, uh, it's a double-edged sword. We're loved and that's a good thing, you know, for us that 
are on this side of the table and we're loved and that's a bad thing for those that are on that side of the table because yeah. they get in the way of our shit, you know. But you know, I, 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 I would be amiss if I if I didn't giggle a little bit about him having to shit <laughs> on the side of the road because uh, to be fair, that's what we deserve. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're such fuckheads and selfish that uh I mean it's it's a perfect it's a perfect visualization of of what it of, will do to us. Well, of of incomprehensible demoralization. Sure. When when yeah. the when you can no longer hide from the world what we really are. Yeah. You know, I've used that before like like that's who we really are is the guy shitting behind a small bush on a corner going to meet our drug dealer. Like, like that's who we are at that time laying in, in somebody else's piss and shit on a bathroom floor. That's who we are in our addiction. Mm -hmm. Right. And then fast forward through getting sober, right. Having that obsession removed to the people that we met at, at that with a, a beautiful daughter, a family, a home, and still holding at the at the heart of that value, the obsession to use and drink has been lifted. Yeah, you know. So, thank you, Dylan, for for this. You know, thank you, Donnie, for for doing it. Uh, yeah, thank last you. week. You know, been awesome. You know, and and Dylan and Donnie are not the only two uh, members of the Not So Anonymous podcast. Uh, there's four of them. There's four of them. Is that uh, Goomer? And they also have a Jordan. They also have a Jordan. And and I, I just want to say, you know, Goomer recently lost his mom. And so uh, our hearts go out to, to him mm -hmm. and, and his family's healing. You know, this is this is real life shit. You know, the people that are on here are real people. We all have real struggles. We all have real uh, wins and losses and emotions and friends. And yeah. we watch people come in and out and go in and out. We've had people that have told their stories that are no longer in sobriety. And right. And uh, we have people that were a few days, you know, just not very long sober that have told their stories that now have some substantial time. So yeah, this stuff is real. We really are over here doing this stuff, man. And, and I appreciate everybody that, that puts themselves out there for you guys to hear it and share and for us to gain so much from it. So, yeah, we really are the lucky ones. I feel like I'm reminded all the time. Um, and, uh, and it's so great to meet all these people and, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm just honored that they share their sobriety journey with us and, and I don't know what mine would be without them. No, so. be different now. Right. This yeah. Was, this was a fun conversation, man. I'm really glad that we got this topic out of this conversation because it's yeah, it been feels interesting. Like it, it feels like something we haven't really tackled at this angle before. Right. So it was, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Kind of, brought up some old feelings i think yeah as it usually does as it as it as it usually does this to be clear this podcast is not recovery that's right yeah, yeah. it helps yeah but this is it's a tool it's a tool mm, you it know? can be yeah um being a host and a member uh as well as a viewer you know because i watch this uh none of none of that equals personal recovery the the personal recovery in my life is the work that i do on a spiritual plane so i love that 
Let's also just mention that uh, an, another recovery tool is, again, the Not So Anonymous podcast. If you are watching on YouTube, you see the beautiful shirt that my friend I got a Willie sick logo like is, it really is wearing is here and the hat as well. And, and, uh, and um, you know, if you want to support them, um, you can certainly do that by, mm-hmm. uh, by, by getting some of that stuff or not. Whatever oh. you want to do. Or do. Yeah, or do. So let's get out of here. All right, let's go get sober. Fuck it, let's get sober. I love that line. Yeah, fuck this shit. (laughs) Jordan, thank you very much. Yeah, Jordan. And Jordan. And also just Jordan. And uh, our Jordan, their Jordan, our Rylan, their Rylan. Our second Jordan. Our Cameron. Yep, our second. Any other Camerons? If there's a Cameron listening, let's talk. Yeah. We'll probably have a lot in common. Yeah. So with that, we will see you on the other side. You are worth the work. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.